0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to new and returning listeners. I am Dr. Danica Ramsey Brimberg and one of the co hosts of the New Books in Irish Studies podcast channel for New Books Network. For today's episode, I am pleased to welcome back Dr. Elizabeth Boyle, who is a lecturer in the Department of Early Irish at Maynooth University and author of several works, including the recently published Fierced Appetites loving, losing, and living to excess in my present and in the writings of the past. Lizzie, thank you for coming back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. For those listeners unfamiliar with the book, what is Fierce Appetites about? Well, it's
1: essentially about two things uh, that are interconnected through the book. Um, the first thing is uh, the the story of my own life, really, and how I uh, came to be an academic, how I came to be working on um, Medieval Ireland, uh, my university career and uh, my life with my students today. Um, But Uh, At the same time, it's also about medieval Irish history and literature, because it uses sort of those aspects of my life as jumping off points to discuss and introduce um, medieval Irish texts and sources uh, to readers who might not otherwise be familiar with them. So what inspired you to write this book? Um, well i was actually invited to write it um, so i had uh, written a blog post quite early on in the in the coronavirus pandemic um, when my university had switched uh, to online teaching and uh, i wrote this blog post addressed to my students telling them that that i missed them and that uh, i missed their presence uh, in the lecture uh, hall and that online teaching wasn't the same um, but i also wrote about some historic pandemics that We'd studied the previous semester, um, one in the seventh century and one in the eleventh century, and I sort of linked the the history that we'd studied um, to what was happening in our own present. And the blog post came to the attention of an editor at Penguin Random House uh, by the name of Patricia Devi, and she contacted me to see if I would like to develop it into a into a book length um, work that, as I say, interweaves the present and the the medieval past.
0: Uh, the last time on the podcast, we talked about your book, History and Salvation in Medieval Ireland, which is m- much more of a traditional academic book. How was writing this book different? And were there any particular challenges to writing this book as opposed to history and salvation?
1: Um, well, yes, it was very, very different writing this one. Uh, the experiences uh, couldn't have been more different, really. I mean, uh, history and salvation um was the result of sort of seven years of research and it's a very traditional academic book um, and uh, written in a very traditional academic style and this book is not at all academic um, so there are no kind of references or or end notes or citations um, and it's a very personal uh, book and so on some level, it was quite liberating to write it because it just sort of flowed very freely. And and in some respects, I found it quite easy to write. Um, But uh, in other respects, it was difficult because I'm actually talking about my personal life and um, also members of my family, uh, people who were Alive and have the potential to to be hurt if you get something wrong about them. Um, whereas I'm obviously used to writing about people that have been dead for hundreds of years, and it's perhaps a little less serious if you get something wrong about them. So there were some real challenges um, about uh, writing uh, about people uh, around me, people I know. Um, and that being said, it was um, much easier to write um, in terms of just flow and, and creativity compared to my
0: more traditional academic work. Um, in between the personal aspects the, um, and the memoir aspect of the book, you weave elements of medieval texts and life into it, with, along with your own reflections about 2020. As academics, though, we are expected to take out the personal element when writing or researching. How did you find the experience of blending the two together? It was
1: quite exciting in some ways to be able to just kind of... um, Really, say what I felt about a text. So some of some of them uh, are really quite personal responses to sources, not necessarily um, an interpretation that I would use in a lecture, for example, but rather just this is how this makes me feel. Um, and uh, I think it was it was quite exciting to be able to just sort of um, uh, to, to to do that. Um, but I also, in some respects, view the book as a bit of a, a An experiment or an investigation into whether we actually really do separate the personal from the academic, or whether, um, as I say at one point in the book, we all sort of bring ourselves to the study of the past and actually our own experiences and then the forces that have shaped us as individuals. We whether we're conscious of it or not, we do bring them to bear on the past. So I feel, yeah, on the one hand, it was um, sort of nice to be able to just say this is how a text makes me feel rather than uh, analysing it per se. Um, But I do also think that there was that sort of investigation of how impersonal academic
0: research really is. With consideration to that, in the book, you interweave moments from your life and thoughts about the present, particularly when you were writing this, with pieces of the literature, history, and even archaeology. Which came first then? Was it the personal aspect of your thoughts and memories or the medieval side of the parallel? Um, It's hard to say because I think actually
1: the book reflects on some level just kind of the way that my brain works. And I think that it might be true of of anyone who works in any kind of academic discipline, that if you spend enough years just sort of day in, day out thinking about a particular subject, then that subject can often uh, sort of shape the way you then respond to other things that are happening in in your life. So um, I I can't uh, escape the the reaction when I see something that happens on the news, and I and I, I immediately think of an, a medieval parallel, or um, I you know sort of have something happen in my life, and perhaps my first sort of recourse might be to a a similar literary description of that kind of experience. So I think. The, the two things, the two strands are totally interwoven. Um, but I think that's a product of just how my brain works. That I tend to sort of experience life through uh, a kind of medievalist lens in a way, um, just through years of training. Uh, and so it's not really possible for me to to separate out the the modern and the medieval strands in the book.
0: I, I, I completely un- understand because that's the way my brain works when I watch the news or I read something that's um, more to do with the present day as opposed to the medieval period. Um, in beer Sapatites though, these ideas are all organized into chapters that are labeled with Gregorian calendar months, to which a topic is associated. So with May, it's associated with learning, and November is with love. Why did you choose to organize the book in this way?
1: Um, I think it was partly to do with the fact that um, my father died at the very beginning of January in 2020 and it just so happens by sort of sheer chance that the last thing he ever said to me was Happy New Year and that after he then died um, became sort of somehow freighted with meaning for me um, and so that... Which was then followed, sort of, a few months later, by the the pandemic lockdowns, and you know the what we all experienced with um, uh, the the sort of uh, coronavirus pandemic. Then compounded by the fact that I was turning 40 in 2020, which seems sort of like a momentous birthday um, and a, a time to reflect on life. I think it just all sort of combined to give give the year a certain amount of weight um, uh, in my own perception of it. And so that's where the idea came from, that, that I would write these 12 essays and, and link each one to a month uh, in the year of 2020. Um, the themes... Are somewhat shaped by my my experiences. So January is obviously therefore themed with grief because because that is when my when my dad died. Um, but other ones were more shaped by uh, things that were going on in the world. Um, and so the chapter on inheritance uh, deals. In, in, with, amongst other things with the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the things we inherit from the past um, in relation to social inequality and uh, race and racism, uh, both medieval and modern.
0: You talk about historians, although I think it applies to other writers when considering all of these ideas, needing to quote get the balance right between telling the stories of individual individuals and those of broader trends. How did you try to achieve this when writing Fierce Appetites?
1: Well, that was yeah the big challenge because um, fundamentally. A memoir or sort of writing about your own life story, inevitably to some extent, is going to, it's, it's got to centre an individual yourself. You know, you are writing about about you and your life. Um, so to then balance that with, for me, the bigger subject, which was medieval um, medieval studies, medieval Ireland, especially, um, it was it was difficult to juggle, I think, you know, is there too much of me in this chapter? Or is there too much of the medieval literature in this chapter? And um, I was sort of constantly playing, playing around with with how much of of myself I put into the narrative. Um, especially then, when I was dealing with topics such as racism, where I absolutely don't want to centre myself. So how do I get the balance right there in terms of talking about other people's experiences, uh, both medieval and modern. Um, so I think it was it was quite a challenge um, to to do that but I think I first of all it was important for me to articulate the fact that that's kind of what we are trying to do as historians on the one hand capture the experiences of real people and real lives and on the other hand relate them perhaps to broader broader patterns, broader trends, um, broader social forces um, and I think it's up to the reader as to judge whether I succeeded or not to be honest, because all I can say is that I, you know, I, I thought about these, these issues and, and wrote about these issues. And I just I hope uh, that I've had some success in juggling the individual and the, and the more universal.
0: One of the things that I love about this book is how accessible you make the medieval texts and the people within them, which is something you seem to champion throughout your teaching and publications. Why is this so important to you?
1: Um, I think
0: it's important
1: to me, in part, just because I think uh, medieval Irish history is interesting. I think a lot of medieval Irish literature is is in incredibly um, intriguing and often less well known than the, the literatures of other um, uh, medieval cultures. Um, so it's just a sort of enthusiasm for, for letting people know about this material, which uh, I think is important. Um, but I think perhaps my particular investment in accessibility is also to do with, um, you know, i am come come from a non-traditional background in terms of you know, being the, the first in my family to go to university and um, coming from uh, a relatively less Privileged background. Um, I talk a little bit of in uh, in the book about, um, for example, having you know a sibling who was in prison when I went off to university, and and so I think you know it was accessibility to me is important because. I want people to know that you don't have to be the child of a professor to become a professor yourself, or you don't have to have gone to a private school to to go to an elite university, for example, or you don't have to go to an elite university to become a historian. And so, yeah, I think um, I'm excited by by the material itself, but I'm also invested in making it accessible to people because I think it's important that it should be available to as many people as possible.
0: To build on that, uh, how do you go about doing this? Can you give an example? Um, yeah, so all sorts of things. I think, um, for example, doing podcasts
1: like this—you know, the, these podcast interviews—I think can reach people that that might not necessarily go into uh, a bookshop and uh, aim straight for the sort of academic history books, for example. Um, I did a lot of uh, kind of outreach lectures when I was. Uh, at Cambridge. I spent 10 years at Cambridge University and I'd go into um, more disadvantaged areas such as inner city schools and I'd give subject talks um, and, and lectures about my uh, research areas. And uh, I think also fundamentally uh, my book Fierce Appetites is in itself a sort of exercise in accessibility, because it is fundamentally trying to write about an academic discipline in a non-academic way and say, you know, here's all this amazing stuff from medieval Ireland. Here's what we think about it and how we interpret it and how we study it. Um, But writing about that in an accessible way.
0: You have lived a life that has been full of a lot of different moments, both positive and negative. And I'm being vague here because I am afraid of giving away too much. Has your lived experience impacted your reading of the texts and how so? Um, I think
1: that everybody's lived experience impacts the way that they read texts. I think what we gain from literature um, is almost always shaped by our own experiences in in life um, I think and this again is something that I explore a little bit in the book that my experience of uh, migration and of having been born in Ireland and then grown up in England and then moved back to Ireland again as an adult and and that feeling of a sort of hybridity or being, being between places, I think that does impact the way that I read uh, texts because I've always tended to interpret um, medieval Irish literature within its broader European context and I think that might be as a result of being an immigrant. Um, so yeah, I, I think um that uh, my experience shapes the way i read uh, the texts but i think that that's true for everybody
0: have you found reading or rereading particular medieval poetry or prose to be cathartic or cathartic sorry about that or useful in certain moments yes i think i have um and
1: i think i do mention a few moments in the book where there are texts that have particularly spoken to me uh, in particular moments. But I also think actually, it's not even necessarily the content of the texts themselves that I find cathartic or therapeutic, but more the activity of scholarship. Um, So for example, I really, really enjoy translating uh, medieval Irish poetry uh, into English. I really, that was one of my favorite moments in writing Fierce Appetites actually was doing some translations of the poems that I, that I talk about. And I found that translation process very, I find it calming and therapeutic. It's one of my favorite things to do. And um, I sort of, I say somewhere in the book that, uh, you know, I never could have in a way predicted that I would have ended up being uh, a historian, but it was almost uh, that I, could have found any subject and would have found it calming and therapeutic and cathartic to just absorb myself in something. So it happens to be medieval Irish literature and history. But I think if I was absorbed in, in physics or uh you know, kind of modern English literature or uh, chemistry or any other subject. It's the it's the act of scholarship, the act of studying that I find most cathartic and most sort of therapeutic. Um, so I just like to be absorbed in something. And uh, I just
0: happen to be absorbed in medieval Ireland. Going off of that the idea, which makes complete sense, did writing the book help you process a lot of the events more globally, not just in your life, but in 2020 as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, I can't imagine that there are many people whose lives were untouched by by everything that happened in 2020. And I think the way of structuring my book around that year and again, sort of using it to jump off to, to other points in my life as well as to other... Uh, Places in time, um, it was quite helpful for me. Um, I was sort of thinking occasionally when I was writing about the uh, medieval chroniclers and analysts, so those who kind of kept the year-on-year records of events, um, who might have been based, you know, in a monastery somewhere, and were were kind of recording for posterity um the most important events of of the time that they were living in and i i I sort of kind of occasionally when i was writing thinking thought that what i was doing was akin to a medieval chronicler in that i was sort of chronicling 2020 as i experienced it from my perspective situated where i was geographically um, and so that i think helped it, it sort of helped to feel like i was sort of keeping uh, a record of events uh, at the same time as as trying to make sense of other things and and talk about the middle ages more more generally
0: similarly how was your readings of the past affected your considerations of the present particularly with the ongoing political well n- not necessarily well still ongoing political, social, and medical events, particularly of 2020, as well as while you've been talking about your book?
1: Um, I think it's, again, sort of maybe to go back to what I said earlier about my own sort of tendency to to often see everything through a kind of medieval lens in a way that I think, but I think it does, uh, on the one hand, offer a kind of consolation to know that people have gone through this before. And there have been previous pandemics and there have been previous, um, you know, sort of moments of political crisis and and so on. And, you know, humanity is gotten through them um so that is that's on the one hand consoling um but i think also having a historical perspective has has i don't know energized me in a way to want to take action against things as well and to to uh want to be actively participating in trying to make things better. Um, because how do improvements come about? How do we lessen inequality? I mean, the inequalities that were laid so bare in 2020, what can we do on a practical level to, to make those things better? So I think, on the one hand, like thinking about the medieval texts, it can be a consolation in, in difficult times but I wouldn't want anyone to think that that was a passive process that you know if anything it's made me feel very proactive about um doing things and helping to to bring about change so I mean even in the um kind of uh, aftermath of my book being published I uh had, well, I'd always been a member of the my my trade union, um, the Irish Federation of University Teachers. But since the book came out, I've actually become more proactive and I've joined the the committee of my local union branch. And so I think, yeah, having this historical perspective um, can uh, both energise you as well as sort of consoling you when you're um, thinking about the kind of difficult times that we're, we're living through at the moment.
0: And then... Literal and metaphorical journeys appear through the book, not just through 2020, but also those related to heaven and hell, those through education, life, and the landscape, even when you talk about your journeys going from Dublin to Cambridge. Is the and I'm asking this question because you talk about it in the book, is the path or the destination the most important part and why? I think that's a really good question.
1: And I sort of um I would say, and I and I hope this kind of comes through uh, in the book uh, as well, that I really do think it's the journey, um, and not. The destination uh because we don't know where we're going. That's and, and that's you know the one thing that we can learn from history is that we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Something totally unexpected can happen and we can, you know, in spite of all of our best intentions not arrive at our destination. And I think if we're always you know considering our ultimate destination, then we lose site of the journey which to me is the important thing so yeah as you say I write about um for example medieval voyage tales where it's it's the journey itself that helps the the protagonist to maybe work through uh emotional issues that they have or work through a kind of religious experience that they're going through and so yeah absolutely it's it's for me about uh, the path that you're taking, uh, which may take many unexpected routes during uh, your lifetime, uh, rather than any ultimate destination at the end of it.
0: You in in the book are very open about your past and present journeys and in keeping in in consideration of those medieval writers. Were they similar in their candor or were they more cultivating a specific perspective when writing about either their experiences or those of, um, they describe as either past peoples, either in literature or histories.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. So, yeah, I I talk a little bit in the book about, for example, um, the kind of use of a poetic persona. Um, and that's, you know, very common in medieval Texts, especially medieval Irish poetry, for example, people often adopt a persona, and so you can sort of, on first reading, read it, read a text where you really think you're getting to getting to know someone, or it it can feel like it has a a, that it's personal, or it has a sort of intimacy or candor, as you say, Um, but I, I. I'm very cautious about that in relation um, to medieval texts because I think often there is a a poetic persona being adopted um, or the kind of modes of literary expression are often being slightly more shaped by um, expectations of genre um, than the idea, you know, our our modern idea of a, a memoir in which we, somewhat sort of lay ourselves bare um i think i i have to be very cautious about um seeing that in any kind of uh medieval texts and one example that i that i use as well um in the book is is our. Writings that survive by Saint Patrick, where he writes his his so-called Confessio, in which he he gives an account of his life, but it's very very much crafted, um, quoting uh, from making biblical allusions and and quoting passages of the Bible. It's very much shaped to to sort of justify his own ecclesiastical mission in Ireland, for example, and so uh, it, it's very you know difficult to get at any kind of real person who is the real Patrick but behind that text um he's very much writing with an with an agenda now it's also a good question as to whether actually the modern memoir where the writer is sort of claiming to to bear all or to reveal more of themselves whether actually that is any more open than the kind of medieval text or the medieval Persona, and I sort of play around with that a little bit in the book uh, to sort of pointing out that any account of myself that I give in the book is also only sort of fragmentary or partial. You can't sort of know the whole of me from from one book, you know. So um, I think, yeah, literary persona or or the adoption of poetic um, persona uh, is perhaps something that's as much uh, a modern phenomenon as a medieval one. Uh, but I think, yeah, candor in medieval texts can sometimes be illusory. It's it's not necessarily a real person that you're getting at um, in terms of how they're expressing themselves.
0: I really appreciated that that section in your book when you talk about how your memoirs is from a specific perspective and it. it's from your own vision of your past and your present. And I, not many memoirs tend to write that in. And I appreciated that you wrote that in there
1: (laughs) thank you yeah well it's I mean I was very aware of it only being my own perspective and 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 partly because the the type of History that I am writing about in the book is shaped by my own area of expertise, so that is of course partial and and geographically limited, and then my own life experience is of course partial and geographically limited. So um, it's I was very aware of it, and I was I was aware even that within my own family there were people who would disagree with my interpretation of events, and and so I had to um, be very clear on on the fact that everybody experiences the same things differently. And uh, so all I can offer is my own perspective when it comes to, to my account of my life.
0: Emotions tend to feature heavily throughout the book in relation to different texts and your experiences. But in chapter one, you comment that the texts related to emotions, particularly those of grief, are, quote, public expressions and Quote, public or communal statements. This made me think would these texts have been widely read and therefore public, or are they more for a specific audience?
1: I think it varies from, from text to text. It depends on on what kind of source that um I'm discussing at any given time. Um I was sort of in relation to the the statements of, of grief that I was studying from the Middle Ages, I was sort of again cautioning, I suppose, against the idea that the, the author is giving you a a sort of genuine or, or or sort of um unfiltered or unvarnished glimpse of their own emotion. Because the the manuscripts um, that survived from medieval Ireland were being produced in, in ecclesiastical um, scriptoria and they were therefore sort of shared documents in a way um, you might say. And, and the things that are, are uh, written into a manuscript um, you know, occasionally you can get what seemed like sort of personal um, additions in the form of marginalia, say, or, or, Kind of pen trials and things, but essentially the the main body of of most manuscripts um, has to be for public consumption in the sense that it's at least for the consumption of, say, the monastic brethren in a particular community. So in that sense, that those documents are are communal um and and maybe you might describe them as sort of semi public um and then of course there are other texts that are designed to be read out in public contexts and um thinking there for example maybe the the sort of saga literature uh which might be sort of read aloud at uh, at feasts or or public events um and there you're talking about truly public kind of literature and so again we're not necessarily getting sort of Intimate glimpses of of inner emotions, necessarily, but rather something that's designed to appeal to a, a broader public, and therefore maybe speak to more universal concerns, um, or at least the concerns of the particular community that produced the any given sort of text or or manuscript in question.
0: When approaching text, how do you go about peeling back? the layers to study their meaning and context, whether in relation to emotion or other aspects? And can you give an example? Um,
1: Again, it sort of varies from text to text and, and what you know what kind of genre or um what kind of uh, author you're dealing with when i'm looking at um things from medieval ireland it even depends on what kind of language the text is written in whether it's in latin or it's in in irish um, but for me peeling about back the layers and trying to look for for meaning um i do it very much based on what other medieval irish writers say about meaning um, and how to interpret texts. So we have a very rich uh, body of grammatical texts and also um, exegetical texts. So texts that basically uh, look at the the meaning of the Bible, for example, and offer different interpretations based on uh, different ways of interpreting biblical biblical texts and so i try to use the tools that medieval irish authors themselves have left us their ways of interpreting uh texts So have a nice uh example i think in the book one that i really like anyway is the uh, grammarian called virgilius maro grammaticus and he talks about um words and letters being being like the human physical body but that if you peel back uh those those uh the physical aspects of a of a word or of a letter uh you get to its inner meaning and um every word every every um kind of statement has what he calls a celestial fire and so this idea that you can therefore peel back language um peel away external meaning to look for internal meaning i take that for example as a a justification for reading things on a metaphorical level or reading texts on a figurative uh, level because medieval irish authors themselves are telling us that they do that you know so that's uh, but as i say it depends how i go about it. it would really depend on the kind of source that i'm looking at um and uh how well it lends itself to maybe a, a grammatical or exegetical kind of reading
0: throughout the book you make correlations of these medieval irish texts as well as texts from uh, early medieval england and the continent and i further even south i believe even into africa and compare the and make correlate and correlate them to the present and your life and then you make comparisons of past perspectives to those of modern perspectives. Overall, did you find that emotions and life were the same in the medieval period as now? That's a really difficult question because I think my
1: answer would be both yes and no. Um, on the one hand, yes, in the sense that I believe people have always suffered grief, uh suffered loss, they've always laughed, they've always loved, uh they've always lusted. Um so I think there are universal um emotions uh that and I think I've uh sort of drawn out some some of those uh in the book. Uh but at the same time I'd also say no because the medieval world was completely different to ours. Um, it's uh, you know operating within a completely different conception of, uh, for example, human rights. Uh, so I, I write, for example, in relation to Ireland, um, about the sort of enslavement of um, other Irish people, uh, by Irish people, as being completely uh, acceptable and a normal feature of, of society um, and things that are you know that intellectuals are finding ways to justify um the, the the continual attempts to justify the idea of heaven for example as a hierarchical space where the richer and more important uh, people occupy a superior position in in heaven uh, therefore mirroring the uh, the social inequalities uh, on earth whatever you know those those kind of ideas are or really should be abhorrent to, to us. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to go back into a medieval society with, with its you know, kind of uh, some horrendous attitudes towards women, for example, with uh, you know, institutionalized misogyny uh, in reflected in the laws and uh, in all aspects of, of daily life. Um, so I sort of, sort of want to say yes, on some level, of course, we're all human and have always been uh, human. But on the other hand, uh, I hope I've also shown that the medieval world was um, in certain respects very alien from our own, and uh, uh, whilst, of course, social inequality and misogyny still exists, um, it uh, f- is framed in different ways and manifests in different ways in the modern era uh, than it did in the in the medieval uh, era. So yes and no. I know that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but I think that's true, to be honest, that there are things that are the same and things that really,
0: really aren't. I don't think it's a cop-out answer. It's probably the way I would answer the question. Actually, it is the way that I would answer the question. So
1: Good. That's good to know.
0: <laughs> do then we as readers have too much of a tendency when reading texts to approach the past with present eyes?
1: Well, I don't think we can avoid approaching the past with present eyes. I mean, I think we sort of... You can, you know, we can be trained to read medieval texts and try to read them within their medieval context. We try to understand the kind of worldview that the that um, the author might have inhabited. Uh, we can, you know, as I was sort of saying just earlier about using uh, medieval grammatical texts to understand grammar, using medieval exegetical texts to understand uh, narratives and, and so on. But ultimately, we're there's there's got to be some level of subjectivity because you can't you can't sort of lift yourself beyond your own um environment and the the conditions that have shaped you the world that's formed you um so it's not necessarily that i think we have too much of a tendency to to approach the past with present eyes but rather it's inevitable that we will approach the past with present eyes because not entirely sure that we can do otherwise um and while i've gone to an extreme with, with fierce appetites and absolutely read uh, you know sort of every text within the context of my experience and, and sort of almost played with the with the limits of subjectivity. Um, uh, I think it's it's inevitable that even when I'm writing uh, you know the, the driest and dullest of academic papers, I'm still bringing myself to the study of the material and uh, it's
0: not necessarily a bad thing is this what is also happening when we read translations? In the book, you talk about how translations are really adaptions or versions. How has that affected or changed the m- meaning of the original text?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, every act of translation is an act of, of change, uh, changing a text. And um, I kind of refer to that in a few different ways in the book, I think, because uh, on the one hand, um, I talk about uh, so the the most well-known uh, Irish epic um, is the Tyne Bocollonia, the Cattle Raid of Cooley, uh, usually just known as the Tyne. Uh, and uh, it's a text that a lot of Irish people especially would might think that they've read, um, but They've usually read uh, one of two translations, either the one by Thomas Kinsler or the one by Kieran Carson, and in both cases, uh, those those men are both. They were both poets, and they uh, produced works of literature that were great works of English literature. But they actually didn't reflect any um, surviving medieval version of the time. What they did was sort of took bits from different versions and and put them together to kind of create the the best narrative for their purposes as people writing in English in the the 20th or 21st centuries. Um, So I, you know, sort of really made the perhaps slightly provocative uh, point that most people who think they've read the time actually haven't because neither of those translations accurately reflect any medieval version of the text but even a, a more literal translation that does attempt to sort of accurately reflect uh, a medieval text as it survives in a manuscript is still you know the the choices that the translators make can then affect how the text is understood in ways that perhaps the author, you know, wouldn't have uh, intended at all. Uh, there, I think a good example might be um, the, the medieval Irish uh, set of poems known as Bulahovna, or the um, sort of frenzy of of Sweeney um, but it was translated by Seamus Heaney and he gave it the title Sweeney astray and people have taken that astray um, uh, uh, which is not what Buller means um, and have kind of yeah taken that as meaning something slightly different than the original uh, text and so yeah these the, the the implications of translations especially for something in in a language like Old Irish that very few people read um, can be quite Quite considerable in terms of the the way the text is then understood, um, but that's all. But that's also okay too. You know, that's part of the uh, the history of the reception of a text, and it changes and it, it develops a new life in its new language. And and I think that's quite exciting too.
0: Taking all of these ideas into consideration, I wanted to ask you to follow up on a question you answer in Fierce Appetites. In the book, a student asked you the question, what's the point miss when it's already happened? There's nothing you can do to change it. You initially said that quote, studying history helps us to make sense of the present. But then you said you wish that you said that quote, that there's nothing we can do to change the past. The past is what has already happened, but there is everything we can do to change history. Is your answer still the same since you published the book?
1: Yeah, I think my answer is still the same. And I think uh, differentiating between the past and history is uh, an important thing. Um, And uh, history, we can change. And I think we have an ethical obligation uh, to change uh, history. And by that, I mean... Going into the archives and going into to libraries, going into communities and pulling out new stories, finding more stories that reflect more experiences of more people. Um, because, as I say in the book, yeah, the past is everything that's ever happened, and it's so you know near infinite that we could barely hope to ever document even a fraction of it. But we make choices about what we do document, and uh, historians you know, for a long time, uh did tend to focus on the kind of sort of battles and kings and and nation building and 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 I say in the book that, you know, those things that they have an important role to play in in understanding history and 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 how we define what history is. Um, but I think there is just so much more that can be Told, and it's up to us as historians to write new and different stories that include more people and more voices. And so that means actively going and looking for the voices of historically marginalised peoples or uh, uh, minority communities, and uh, and so on. And also, you know, thinking about the history of different concepts as well, like uh, you know, environmental history or or post human history. And um, so I think, yeah. I stick by my answer uh, that uh, although we can't do anything to change the past uh, we can change history and and should change history um, and that's something that we can do every day what is your favorite part of the book
0: and why (sighs) that's difficult
1: (laughs) I have um, different different bits that I like for for different reasons Um, I like the bit where I have just a couple of pages where I write about heavy metal extreme metal I really love heavy metal I really love extreme metal bands and just being able to sort of say a little bit about why I like uh, that genre of music uh, I, I like that especially because it makes me think of my musician friends who I write a little bit about in the book uh, In the book too um, I also really like the, this is just this little scene um, in November after the US presidential elections where me and one of my brothers are sitting in armchairs drinking coffee and watching CNN, uh, watching the election results and, and that just makes me smile because it was such a kind of peaceful happy moment between me and my brother because obviously we're not American and we weren't you know wasn't as stressful for us as it would have been for a lot of US citizens to watch those results come in um, so for me it was just sort of a happy time with my brother and so it's actually it's, it's little scenes like that or talking about the stuff that might not be the main interest for the reader um, I assume people who pick up the book will pick it up because they want to learn something about the medieval world or because they're interested in memoir and they want to read about my life but for me, it's just the it's the those little asides, uh, of, yeah, about heavy metal, about times with my uh, brothers, and maybe the very last uh, scene, which I won't uh, sort of give away the the spoiler of how it ends. But um, uh, on New Year's Eve at the end of 2020, just sort of playing mahjong uh, with my family, and uh, just yeah, those those little asides um, are actually my favorite bits, even though they might not seem like the most uh, important bits of the book.
0: I mean, the, at least in my perspective, they are they are important bits because they're happy memories and they're sort of like a glimpse into your life. Is there of the moments of your life, or of literature, or an aspect of history? Is there one anecdote that you wanted to include but were not able to?
1: Um, from my own life, there was quite a bit that I might have included but uh, didn't. Um, because, uh, of essentially uh, for legal reasons so some of them were more difficult I, I allude in the book to the, the, to the fact that there were more difficult things that had happened um, in my life and the life of other family members but which I couldn't write about um, and that was uh, really to do with the practical business of getting the book through the, the legal reads by the, the lawyers the Irish and UK lawyers that that read the, the manuscript um, in terms of medieval texts I couldn't even begin to tell you the number of different sort of stories and anecdotes that I would love to have uh, put in and didn't uh, have time to or space, I should say, really to write about. Um, There were so many kind of tales that I would love to have have said more about. And even ones that I did discuss, um, I feel like there's so much more that I could have said about them. um, But you know the the book had to <laughs> have to be limits so um that's uh, I I am happy with the selection that I ended up with uh but definitely there's loads more brilliant medieval irish literature that I uh, could have written about but didn't have space to do so
0: perhaps a second perhaps a second book focused on those medieval stories <laughs>
1: <laughs> we shall see we shall see um i have been asked uh by a few people now whether i'm gonna write a sort of sequel um or something i i gave a talk recently where uh one member of the audience suggested that i should just do one every 10 years you know like once a decade just reassess the world and reassess medieval irish uh literature and history which seemed like a fun uh fun idea
0: second third edition of the book
1: yeah perhaps <laughs> <laughs>
0: What is the one thing that you hope readers take away from reading your book? I
1: think it is that there is this hugely rich, interesting, complex body of material from early medieval Ireland, that Ireland has a history, a complex history um, in the early medieval period and that it's of value to to read it to study it it has things to to say it has an iner- inherent value um, and uh, I think if I can challenge what tends to be I think a very unfortunate um, perception that lingers um, in Irish studies which is that real history in Ireland doesn't really begin until the Normans arrive in the 12th century and so so it's only once the English arrive in Ireland that you get real history and before that it's all about bit fuzzy. So I would like the big lesson for people to take away to be that no, there's all this complex history, complex literature, sophisticated, um, unequal, difficult society, um, but one that's that's worth studying. And uh, my book is hopefully just an introduction to some of that.
0: Do you have any future projects or anything else you'd like to mention on the podcast? I have a future project, well, current current project, I should say,
1: uh, which is that I'm sort of going back to to academic roots. Uh, but I'm currently working on a on a university textbook, um, an introduction to early Irish literature, uh, which uh, I'm working on with the, with the Florida State University Press and um, hoping that's something that will be able to be set in universities for undergraduates and for interested non-academic readers as well, but just a, a kind of um, overview uh, introduction to to the whole corpus of, of early Irish literature, both in Irish and in Latin. So that's what I'm working on at the moment.
0: That sounds awesome. I can't wait to uh, read that too or... Thank you so much, Lizzie, for joining me today to talk about your book and as well, all of your ideas and your future project or your current project. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Dr. Elizabeth Boyle's book, Fierce Appetites, Loving, Losing and Living to Excess in my present and in the writings of the past is available now through Sandy Cove, an imprint of Penguin Books based in Dublin. If you, enjoyed, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, you can listen to my previous interview with Dr. Boyle on her book, History and Salvation in Medieval Ireland, available now through Routledge as a part of their series, Studies in Early Medieval Britain and Ireland. Until next time, say, stay safe and keep reading.